I hope that I never lose uh, the sense of fear and trembling that comes from preaching uh, God's Word. But today I'll admit to feeling a little bit more of that than usual, a little less prepared, a little less capable, as we approach a text uh, that has literally uh, changed the face of the earth, as we approach a topic, a teaching, a doctrine like justification that has quite literally split uh, not just denominations but entire churches globally. And so as we, we jump in this morning, uh, we need to keep a few things in mind. Uh, we need to see that what we're going to look at in the first few verses is going to be a story, a story that is embarrassing for at least one person, if not multiple. And we're going to see some theology, uh, some teaching that is important for us to understand in order to, to get Paul's argument. And then we're going to see some ethics or ways of living uh, past that theology, and that'll be in the first or the last few verses. And, uh, and if the Lord is kind, uh, we'll do all that this morning. And, and if he's kind, uh, it may also be that we have to save some of it for later. We'll see what happens. So as we look to this passage, we need to keep in mind the first few verses here, verses 11 through 14. This is the context in which Paul writes about the doctrine of justification for the Gentiles, or sorry, for the Galatians. Now, you may have heard it said that a text without a context is a pretext to do whatever you want, and there's truth to that. You may have also heard that a text without a context is a con, and I think that's also appropriate. And so we need to see the context in which Paul writes about this doctrine that is so central to our faith. So the story we have is a bit embarrassing. It's the story of a man named Cephas. Now, you may know Cephas, not by the name Cephas, but by the name Peter. So if you remember, Jesus, when he walked the earth, had 12 close disciples, and among them were three even closer ones, and Peter was one of them. His original name was Simon, but Jesus gave him the name Peter, which was Aramaic for rock. So he was rock. And Paul, in his letters, often calls Peter, not by his Aramaic name for rock, but his Greek name for rock, which is Cephas. And that's why we have Cephas being used here. Now, it's kind of an embarrassing story for Cephas, which, if you're familiar with the New Testament, comes as no surprise. Uh, Peter gets himself into trouble quite often and embarrasses himself quite often. And so I think we should begin with a story from Acts. So if you don't mind turning back a few books in your New Testament to the book of Acts, we'll be in Acts chapter 10. Now as we study Paul's letter to the Galatians, let me just encourage you, two things you can study at home besides just reading the letter, two things you can study at home that will be helpful for us, is if you go read the book of Acts. The book of Acts is amazing, uh, and you're going to get a lot of of the background of what's going on in Galatians and Acts, especially Acts about chapter 9 uh, through about chapter 15. Uh, some of that comes after Galatians, but it's all together, right? Another thing you can study is Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 12 through 25, which is all about Abraham, and that's going to become really important uh, next week, okay? So let's look at Acts chapter 10. Now, Peter, uh, in Acts chapter 10, it actually starts with, a Gentile named Cornelius receiving a vision from God, actually an angel from the Lord, 
who appears to him and tells him that he needs to send some of his servants to go find a man named Simon, who they call Peter. So he sends out his guys. And then it cuts to Peter. And Peter, about noon, was, was, was uh, going up to the roof and was praying and getting hungry. And when he was getting hungry, a vision came to him, okay? And this vision, uh, let's read in verse... Let's start in verse uh, 10. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now it says that Peter was confused about this vision. It was a vision of a bunch of animals coming down, including animals that, according to the Mosaic law, would have been considered unclean. Uh, you may think of not kosher. The Jewish people were not supposed to eat them. And yet, the, the message that he is receiving in this vision from God is that he is to go and eat and, and not show partiality just, just to any one of them or all of them. You know, what God has made, don't call common. Don't call it unclean. It's, it's what God has made. And he doesn't really make sense of this until these visitors from Cornelius show up. And, he, and he, it says that the Spirit tells him that he needs to go with these men. And he goes to them, and he goes to Cornelius. And that's when he starts to put the pieces together. Now, if you, this morning, are someone who would not consider yourself a Christian, or you're confused about whether you are, you, you may be a believer, you may not be a believer, you may have made a decision one time in your life, you may not have, I want you to hear very clearly, especially if you're not Jewish and you're a Gentile, hear what Peter says to Cornelius, starting in verse 34, Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead." To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amen, right? This is the gospel, and Peter preaches it to Cornelius and to all these Gentiles, 
And what happens? In verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. You have to remember a little bit of context here. Peter was the man who God appointed to preach the gospel to the first Gentile converts. Up until Acts chapter 10, no Gentile, no truly Gentile person, no one who was truly not Jewish, who had not been obeying the law, had the Holy Spirit come upon them like this, had been born again like this. And here Peter is sent, and he preaches, and they believe, and they, they come to faith in Christ. That was Peter. Not only that, but Peter goes back. He goes back to Jerusalem. He goes back to the church in Judea. And there, he recounts this story. He tells them about the vision he had. He tells them about preaching and how all these Gentiles received the Holy Spirit and how amazing it was. Look in chapter 11, verse 15, just for a moment. He says this, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter here is telling them, what what did you want me to do? Uh, They came to the Lord just as we did. They received the Holy Spirit just as we did. And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this is the early church. This is the good news that God has not just given this gospel to a, to a small group of people, to people from a specific family line with a specific ethnicity, but God was creating a multi-ethnic church in which even those who were not Jewish could enter in the same way that those who had previously been chosen by God in the Old Covenant could enter in, not Not through circumcision or works of the law or ethnicity, but by the grace of God, by the working of the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes verses 11 through 14 so tragic. Because that was Peter, the one who preached the gospel to the first Gentile converts. And he came to Antioch. Now, Antioch was a city north of Jerusalem, predominantly Gentile. But what happens, and you'll read this in Acts if you go read it this week, what happens is there was a great persecution in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria such that many of the Jewish Christians were pushed out. And many of them ended up in Antioch. And they started preaching the gospel of the way of Jesus to, peop- to Jewish people in Antioch. But before long, it tells us in Acts chapter 11... They started preaching to Gentiles also. 
And that's when the church in Antioch became this multi-ethnic church. It became a church of both Jew and Gentile. It became a, a, a mixed congregation. And this presented some challenges. And among them was when Peter shows up. And, and Peter comes, and knowing what he knows, knowing that God had said that he shouldn't call anything common that God had made, knowing what, what he learned through the vision, what he experienced through Cornelius and the other Gentiles, Peter goes to Antioch and eats with the Gentiles. Now, you may not understand the significance of this. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you go to McDonald's, you're going to eat with a lot of strange people. Uh, and that's not just because it's McDonald's. You could go to Cracker Barrel or anywhere else, and you're going to eat with a lot of strange people. Uh, you, they may not be at your table, uh, depending on if you're eating with church members, maybe they are. Uh, but you're going to be eating with some very different people. That's normal in our culture. It's actually more normal to go to a restaurant and eat with a ton of strangers than it is to have close friends come to your house and eat. That's more normal in our culture. In their culture, it was not like that at all. It, it was very rare that they would go out to a, a huge gathering and eat with a bunch of strangers. It was more common that they would invite people into their home and have an intimate meal with them, have table fellowship with them. I mean, this was radical. This is part of the reason that people were really upset at Jesus when he was on the earth. Because he would eat with who? Tax collectors and sinners. He would eat with prostitutes and people who had sold themselves out to the Roman Empire. I mean, he was, he was eating with all sorts of people. And that was very, very problematic in that day. Well, you say, see the same thing here. Peter goes to Antioch and has no reservations about eating with these Gentiles who at one time the Jewish people, especially those from Peter's belief system, the Pharisaical system, would have seen the Gentiles not just as non-Jews, but as lesser people, as unclean people, as sinners. And so, this was very, very earth-shattering for many of the Jewish Christians that not only another believer, a Jewish believer, but an apostle would eat with Gentiles. That's great, but it doesn't stay that way. What's it say in verse 12? It says that after he was eating with these Gentiles, certain men came from James. And when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing this circumcision party, this people who were promoting circumcision for the Gentiles. Now, I do want to note that in verse 12 it says, certain men came from James. We don't know what that means. It probably means that they had maybe like a letter recommending them. Maybe they just said they were coming from James. We know James wasn't too happy with them. If you look at Acts chapter 15, verse 5, James actually addresses these people. And he's like, yeah, the whole reason we're having to get together and talk about all these issues is because some men came from among us and were we're hurting your conscience about these things, and we're teaching falsely. So, so you need to remember, these people weren't coming with the official uh, authority of James, the leader in Jerusalem, uh, but they did count him as their authority here. But they come in, and they, they blow everything up. I mean, they really do. Verse 13 says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I mean, if you don't understand how radical this was, Acts chapter 11 says that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit 
and of faith. And then it tells how Barnabas, who was called to go to Antioch and serve there, goes and gets Paul from Tarsus, where Paul's hometown, and brings him to Antioch to serve with him. So Paul sees this as a huge blow and a huge betrayal of a close friend and a close brother in Christ. They were all being led astray through this hypocrisy. And this wasn't the kind of hypocrisy you hear about today. You probably know many people who, who part of the reason they tell you they don't go to church is because it's just full of hypocrites. And there's a number of responses you can give. You can tell them, well, there's always room for one more. Uh, you can point out that the gospel isn't, hey, you're bad, so be good. The gospel is you are so bad, so sinful, so lost, that the only way you can come to God is not by becoming good, but by becoming a child of God through Jesus Christ. So we're not preaching perfection. We're not preaching moralism. We're preaching radical faith in Christ. But people get that story wrong often. But that is not the hypocrisy they were facing here. This was true hypocrisy. This was a hypocrisy that actually led to heresy. We see that really clearly. The, Paul is telling the story why. It's in Antioch. It's not in Galatia, where he's writing this letter to. Why is he telling this story? Perhaps because the false teachers in Galatia had told this story and told a different view about it. Said, oh, well, even Peter stopped fellowshipping with the, the, the Gentiles. Maybe he's telling this story because he sees a similarity between the circumcision party in Antioch and the false teachers in Galatia. And so he's wanting to make clear what's going on here. Well, what we see is that their hypocrisy was much stronger than you might imagine. Because it wasn't just a matter of who you ate with or who you didn't. It wasn't like when you were in school. Do you remember being in school and eating lunch? And maybe you felt bad for kind of the less popular kid and you went and sat with them until your friend showed up and you felt a little ashamed and you kind of abandoned them because you didn't, oh, well, I just, I just sat here. They sat down after me, you know, whatever. That's bad, but this is worse. Because in doing this, Peter is denying the truth of the gospel. We see that Paul says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, we don't know, we really don't know whether Paul had followed Matthew 18 in this discipline, whether he had gone to Peter privately. We know that Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5.20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that, they rest may stand, so that the rest may stand in fear. So we see here that Paul believes there are times where you have to say things out loud. And you have to speak in front of everyone so that they may fear the rebuke that is coming. And that's the situation Paul finds himself in with Peter. Now, what he accuses Peter of is interesting. He accuses him of being free to no longer live according to the law of Moses, yet then putting that burden on others. He says, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That word force is the same we see in chapter 2, verse 3, where it says that even Titus, who was with, we, with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. 
So he is connecting what Peter is doing with the false teachers that are trying to impose circumcision on the Gentiles. He sees Peter as participating in this work. He sees the gospel at stake. And so we need to recognize this. We need to recognize that even those who seem greatest among us are capable of sin, are capable of failure, are even capable of false teaching. And so we see through the history of the church, although we believe there are many true Christians among the ranks of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, they had fallen into such false teaching about the issues we're talking about today that even those seen as the greatest among them had fallen from the truth of the gospel. And that's not to say that every Roman Catholic you meet today, every Orthodox Christian you meet today, is in complete error, is unsaved. It's to say, though, that the leadership and the teaching, the official doctrine of the church at a time, was false. And we see that happen here with Peter and Paul. I don't know if you all recognize how drastic this whole story is. This wasn't, you know, I'll pick on some people. This wasn't Mike and Matt arguing about theology in the back, you know, in the, in the hallway. No. This was Peter and Paul fighting about what the truth of the gospel was. This was Peter who walked with Jesus who walked, briefly, on the water with Jesus. And like in that episode in which the waves brought him down, now Peter, who was meant to be the rock, has become a wave, and he is just following the waves around him and following the crowd around him. He's so concerned with pleasing people and not offending that Peter's just going with the flow here. So what do we do? Paul gives him some clear theology to address this problem. Look at verse 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay, maybe some definitions are in order. Let's look at this word justification or justified for a moment. I'm going to teach you all a Greek word, and I want you all to say it out loud, and we're just going to see how it goes, okay? Okay, you all ready? Dikaiosune. Can you say that? Dikaiosune. Very good. I'll pretend that that was right. No, that was pretty good. That's an important word. We see it throughout the Bible, and we see that that root word, dikaios, is used in multiple settings, sometimes to mean righteousness or righteous or right, sometimes to mean justice or just. And here Paul is using it in a very special way. And it's actually a way that the Bible, on the whole, uses it. We might say that it is the act, when, when God justifies someone, he is declaring them righteous. 
He is calling them righteous. Now, this is important. The, the Jewish people were very concerned about whether they were righteous or wicked. For example, look at Psalm 37, 39. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Who gets saved? The righteous. You only need to re- read the rest of Psalm 37 to see again and again and again that the wicked do not fare very well with God. This is sometimes, those terms sometimes confuse people, and that's why they get this idea that the gospel is about good and bad. It's about being a bad person who becomes good and then going around criticizing everyone else for being bad. But that's not what is taught in Scripture. Righteousness does not come by how good you are or how nice you are or how kind you are. Justification, being righteous by God is not something that you can earn or merit. It is by what? Faith in Jesus Christ. It is not by works of the law. Here, the law referring to the first five books of Moses. The law of Moses. It's very interesting. These false teachers in Galatia were claiming that the Gentiles needed to obey and observe the law of Moses. Now, to be honest with you, they weren't seeking perfection either. But they expected that if you sinned, you would give the proper sacrifices and do everything in good order. So they weren't thinking you were morally perfect or that you weren't going to break some of the laws, in a sense, but that on the whole you would keep the law so that when you needed to make sacrifice, you would make sacrifice. Let me give you an example of my favorite Old Testament law that most people aren't ever going to have to deal that most even Old Testament people didn't have to deal with in their life. Imagine you dig a hole, and it's so big that your neighbor's donkey falls in it and dies. Well, the law says you are to pay restitution for the donkey. You know what? If you don't dig holes, you're never going to have to deal with that law. There are 613 laws. Many of them are like that. Some of them are like this. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet, do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not have any gods before me, do not make for yourself graven images, keep the Sabbath day, honor your father and mother. There are many laws that everyone has to deal with. But what's so important to understand is that the pharisaical understanding the Jewish understanding that the Jewish people were right and righteous with God and allowed to be in his covenant family was not brought about by works of the law. It never was intended to be. Look at Romans, if you don't mind turning to Romans chapter 9, just for a moment. We'll be in verse 31. Paul says this in Romans But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be 
put to shame. Listen to this very clearly. We are so messed up in trying to understand what the law was meant for. That's partially because we're Americans in the 21st century. We have no, no immediate context for this. When you think of laws, you probably think first and foremost of like traffic violations and going to prison for killing people, that kind of thing. I know you all love those murder mystery, or not murder mystery, those true crime shows. Maybe not some of the older folk, maybe some of the older folk. But that's not what the law is in the Bible. And not only that, the Jewish people who were obeying the law didn't always understand. Many of them did not understand what it was about. That's what Paul's saying here. We assume that, oh, back then they followed the law and they were righteous before God and they were included in his covenant family. And now, now because Jesus has come, they can have faith and they're good. No, no, no. It's not about lowering standards. God isn't about lowering standards. It was from the beginning that they were to have faith in God's Messiah. And that through keeping the law, they learned about their own wretchedness, their own sinfulness, their own need for God. It was meant to point to Jesus so that they could see their complete inability to love and honor and serve God on their own. And when Jesus came, they could clearly see who they were to have faith in. So justification, being righteous before God, being a part of his covenant family, that does not come through keeping works of the law. That does not come by being good. It only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's look at that word, faith. So I'll, I'll teach you another Greek word, uh, only because I have a good anecdote about it. I remember in Greek class, the, the game was always like, can you find a Greek word that means something cool that also sounds good, like if you want to have a child? Like, for example, Adam and Eve. Eve means life. Well, the Greek name for Eve is Zoe. In fact, I was just texting a friend of mine the other day. His, his daughter's name is Zoe, meaning life. Okay. It doesn't always work, though. Let me give you an example. Faith, uh, the word for faith is pistis. Now, I don't know about you, but we would always joke in Greek class that that was a terrible name for a child. But true story, when I was in Scotland, uh, our pastor was from uh, the Congo. And... He named, he was, a, he was a big Bible guy, and he lived in Scotland for years. He was a pastor for years, decades, but he was from there. He named his son Pistis, and what was funny is all the Scottish, some of our Scottish friends were like, we just thought it was like an African name, you know, y'all guys are, no, it's a Greek name, and it's terrible. Anyway, but he's a, he's a good kid. His name's Faith, but Pistis. Anyway, now we need to get something right now. We need to get something real clear. We are in utter danger, even today, of turning faith into a work of the law. Faith is not a specific work that we do in order to be right with God. In fact, it is the opposite of a work of the law. And we are in so much danger so often of turning faith into just another way of appeasing and pleasing God that we might earn our righteousness before him. Faith is the means of justification. That's why it says, by faith. It isn't the cause of justification or the foundation. It is the way we receive justification. 
We are not justified on account of our faith. We are justified by the means of faith. That's how we receive justification. It's not the ground of it. It's the way we receive it. And this needs to be important. If justification were by works of the law, we could brag, we could boast in ourselves and say, I earned this thing. If justification were by works of the law, we, we would probably constantly doubt our efforts and therefore our righteousness before God. We'd say, did I have faith good enough? Did I work good enough? Did I do good enough? And also this, if justification were by works of the law, then Jesus' birth, sinless life, substitutionary death, and glorious resurrection would have been pointless. Why would we need that if we were just supposed to obey the law? He came, he died, because we couldn't. So if faith isn't a work, what is it? If faith isn't a work, what is it? True faith was articulated by the Reformers in response to the heresies of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. It was articulated by the Reformers as they understood it in Scripture with three senses that I think are helpful for us. There's knowing, there's assenting, and there's trusting. Let me give you an example. Let's say I had a seatbelt. Now, if someone teaches me, I, I take a, okay, y'all don't do this here. I wish y'all would start. Y'all don't teach driver's ed to your high school students. You don't require it for them. Uh, you, you ought to start doing that. In fact, we, we ought to maybe, you know, write a letter campaign to our, our representatives that maybe they would make some people go back and do a driver's ed course. Um, I had to take a driver's ed course in order to even get my permit in Oklahoma. Uh, not to say Oklahoma's better, but to say that thing, that, that idea is a good one. Let's say you learn in driver's ed that if you wear a seatbelt, you are far less likely to die in a car accident. You're far less likely to be severely injured in a car accident. Now you have that knowledge. You have the content of that knowledge. That's good. You know what it doesn't do for you? Anything. You know something cool. Lots of people know stuff. Yeah, that's not very helpful. Uh, some of you know know-it-alls. They have almost no social skills other than they know everything. And that's not very helpful. Second thing, assenting to that knowledge. The next thing is to go, okay, well, I know seatbelts save me, so when I get in a car, I should put on a seatbelt. I am affirming the knowledge that I have. That's good. Doesn't actually practically help you that much if you never get in a car. The third thing you have to do is trust. You have to get in the car and put on the seatbelt. And trust that if you're in an accident, it's going to help you out. You can think of it like a chair. I know this chair is here. It's meant for sitting. If people sit in it, it's supposed to keep them up. I assent to that knowledge. I know that if I sit in that chair, that it's going to keep me up. And then the third thing, right? I'm going to sit in the chair. I'm going to trust that it's going to hold me up so I can sit. Now, here's the bad news. It's actually not that bad of news. No matter how good your faith is, it's not going to help you if the chair is broke. No matter how good and how much faith you have, if your faith is in the wrong thing, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good. You can put all of your weight into a broken chair, and it's not going to hold you up just because of how confident and how much faith you have. 
Your faith has to be in the right thing. And in fact, you can have the least amount of faith and still sit up in that chair if it's a good, solid chair. And so we see that it's not just by faith that we are justified. It is by faith in Christ. And the good news for us this morning is that means, that means our faith does not depend, or our justification does not depend on how good our faith is or how much faith we have. If it did, wouldn't we be rededicating ourselves every Sunday or at every church camp? Wouldn't we be walking down the aisle saying, I want to get baptized again and again and again, I just want to get this right this time? Wouldn't we be constantly anxious about our, our justification and our righteousness before God? We would question ourselves day in and day out if it relied on the goodness or the quality or the quantity of my faith. But if it depends not on how good my faith is, but on how good the object of my faith is, then I can have the utmost assurance. I'll tell you this just personally for a moment. I was saved at such a young age that you, and if you've been saved at a young age, maybe you experienced the same thing where later in life you were like, what was I doing? I, was I really sure what I believed? Was I, and I had so many doubts, not, not just overriding terrible doubts, but I really struggled from time to time on whether I had done enough or done it right or done it at the right time. And then I learned this, that you can have the littlest amount of faith and move mountains if that faith is in the right person and in the right thing. I learned that my salvation, my justification before God did not depend on how good Chandler Warren was at at having faith. It didn't matter how much I knew or how I assented to that knowledge or how good I trusted that knowledge it depended on how great and glorious and magnificent my savior Jesus Christ was if he is the same today or yesterday today and tomorrow if he is consistently the same man the same God if he is the true God in in human flesh if he walked this earth and never sinned kept the law perfectly if he stood before God righteous but received the punishment of the wicked by men in my place. If he was raised on the third day, it does not depend on me to be right before God. Faith is just the means by which I receive the gloriousness and the grace of Jesus Christ. This doctrine, I think, perhaps is the doctrine that should give us the most assurance of our faith. Make us the most confident before God. Why? Because it was up to you or to me, we would fail again and again and again, but it's not. Never has been, never was. We have always stood righteous before God, a part of his covenant family, not by how good we are or how much we do, but by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, the concern that the false teachers had in Galatia was that if you go all on board for Jesus and you give up the law, that seems very problematic because you're going to live a very poor life. You're going to live a life of a sinner because you're going to be so in on Jesus has saved me, but you're not going to be in on I need to live differently. 
Paul completely disagrees. Let's look briefly at verses 17 through 21. Verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? He's asking this question, assuming that the false teachers are going to say this, Paul, if you only trust Jesus for your righteousness, and you don't do the works of the law, then you're going to sin. And when you sin, don't you make Christ a sinner? Christ is the one who justified you. Now you're, now you're connecting your sin to Christ. Isn't that terrible? They're trying to play some theological game with him. He said, certainly not. Of course that's not the case. He says this instead. If I rebuild what I tore down, that is the law of Moses that I was trusting in for righteousness, if I rebuild that and I try to live by that and I try to be right with God through that, I prove myself to be a lawbreaker. It is the one who goes back to the law for justification that becomes a lawbreaker, not the other way around. He says, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. It is through the spiritual meaning of the law, pointing to Jesus, that I died to the law. The, the hard, concrete law that, that places a burden on me so that I might live to God. Listen to this. Some of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul believes... That what was true of Jesus, I am in Christ, my faith is in Christ. What is true of Jesus is true of me. And so if Jesus receives rewards from the Father, I receive rewards from the Father. If Jesus was crucified, I was crucified to my old self, my sinful life. If Jesus was raised to a glorious resurrection, I will be raised to newness of life. And one day, I will be raised physically as well. He says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now that I live, I still remain in the flesh. The sinful flesh is still here, but I am fighting it through the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, doing battle day by day, living as one by faith in the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity in which the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I were to go back and follow all those rules, all those laws, expecting that that's what made me righteous before God, expecting that's what made me a part of God's family, then I would nullify the free gift of God, his grace for me. But he says, I do not do that because righteousness doesn't even come through the law. If it did, we wouldn't need Jesus, but it doesn't, we do. Lest we think that this conflict was hopeless, lest we think Paul and Peter never got along again, Let's look at Acts chapter 15 just for a moment. I want us to see clearly the redemption of Peter. After this encounter, after this letter written to the Galatians, they have a council. And at that council, they're dealing with this Jew-Gentile issue. 
Okay, what do the Gentiles need to do to be saved, to be justified before God? What do the, what do the Jews need to do to be a part of this family? What, what, is, what are the expectations, right? What do we preach to them? What do we say to them? And they make this decision, but I want you to hear clearly what Peter says to them in Acts chapter 15, verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows my heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter, well known for his momentary lapses in judgment. But here showing that again and again he receives the grace of God and is shown to learn from his sins and from his failures. And stands before them and says, brothers, why would we place this law on them? Our fathers couldn't keep it. We couldn't keep it. We needed the grace of God. We think we will be saved through the grace of God. We think we will be justified by faith alone. So why are we expecting more from them? The answer, we shouldn't. We should be justified by faith through the power of the Spirit. We should live transformed lives, no longer seeking to sin by the power of the Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit just as we did. And so, let us trust in Christ alone. Let's pray.